If you have your word open, uh, turn to Acts chapter 9, and I will be reading from verse 20 uh, through verse 31. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin? Father, it is a privilege to be here among your people with your word open, your Holy Spirit's presence here. Father, I pray in these next few moments as we read your word, as we look to your word. Father, may we Desire to hear so that we might do. Move us to take what we learn that we might implement it into our lives. That we might ultimately please you with our lives. Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the church we're reading about here this morning in Acts 9. Father, I pray that you would lead, you would guide, you would open our ears to hear what you would have us to know this morning from your word. We thank you that your word is truth. May we not only know this truth, but Lord, may we walk in this truth. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Matthew 16, verse 18 is a verse that we'll come back to here again this morning. Jesus 
says, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. As I was considering that, I was also thinking about where we have been in the book of Acts. Thinking in particular of the challenges for the church along the way. So let me just give you a few quick bullets here of some of the challenges the church has encountered along the way here in the book of Acts. First of all, in Acts chapter 1, we see the death of Judas. And we, we saw there in Acts chapter 1, Peter standing to call the believers to Scripture for adding a twelfth apostle. He calls them to the Scripture, what the Scripture says. They were going to add a twelfth apostle because this is what the Scripture said. We see also in Acts 2 there was some initial confusion and mockery even of the Holy Spirit being poured out. Remember that in Acts chapter 2? Many were confused and there were some who mocked and thought they had just had too much wine to drink. And Peter stands to explain the confusion. He very clearly explains the mockery. How does he do it? Once again, he does it by using the scriptures, the prophet Joel. Church, you want to know what's happening? The prophet Joel prophesied that there would be a day when the spirit would be poured out. It's now happening says Peter in Acts chapter 2. And then in Acts chapters 3 and 4, we see a prison sentence for Peter and John. Remember the man by the gate called Beautiful, who was healed? And they were preaching in the name of Jesus, and the authorities didn't quite care for that. And so they put them away for teaching and preaching Jesus. In particular, preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. At this time, there were verbal threats and they dismissed them. We get to Acts chapter 5 and another challenge comes to the church. And that by way of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. We see on the heels of that direct discipline by God, Ananias and Sapphira both drop dead. The text says then that great fear seized, came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. The end of Acts chapter 5, we see that the apostles once again were put in prison for preaching in Jesus. This time we see beatings and threats. Then in chapter 6 of Acts, we see a complaint arises against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. There was a widow food distribution problem. Remember that? And this problem comes in light of the disciples growing. This was a time the disciples were growing. And so the solution, the apostles appointed seven men full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. And Acts chapter 6, verse 7, another one of those summary statements in in Luke's uh, book here in Acts. Then the word of God spread and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Well, at the end of chapter 6, on in through the entirety of chapter 7, we see there's disputes that arise against Stephen, one of the seven. One of the men full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. This leads to martyrdom. The church then is persecuted following Stephen's death. We see that in Acts chapter 8. The scattered church goes everywhere. What are they doing 
as they go everywhere. They're preaching the word. The scattered church is preaching the word. And then there is in Acts chapter 9, as we've read here of late, confusion that arises out of Saul's conversion. There are believers in, in Damascus and believers in Jerusalem who are having a hard time believing Saul's new nature in Christ. In fact, on two separate occasions, Saul's life is threatened. The disciples rescue him on both occasions. The latter of which they send him to his hometown. Verse 30. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus, his hometown, to escape the Hellenists. And then we get to verse 31 and we let out a collective. That's really what came to mind is that was, was looking at the entirety of Acts up to this point. When you read Acts 9.31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. More than likely, we're only going to get to the first part of this verse today. I'd planned on doing the whole verse, but... We're probably going to get half of it in today. The ESV in this is, is interesting uh, and, and I believe most helpful. Probably more accurate to the, to the literal. And it reads, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, the church, had peace and was being built up. That's the literal rending. Was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, multiplied. Okay, I want you to remember here context. That the gospel is moving forward. It's expanding now into the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's Acts chapter 1. Remember our outline for the book. Acts 1 verse 8. Okay. Started in Jerusalem. There are going to be witnesses in Jerusalem. Going to go into Judea and Samaria. Ultimately to the end of the earth. Okay. And the book of Acts is going to track that very course. All right. So this is significant not only to understand and keep that outline in mind. But it's also I believe helpful for understanding this verse that we're in here today in verse 31. Some translations have church, others have churches, right? Then the churches, the the New King James has churches with a little footnote by it. The reason for the discrepancy is, I believe, easily uh, acknowledged. The best, from all I can tell and study, the best manuscript evidence here uses the singular church, okay? The church began in Jerusalem, and it's now moving out of Jerusalem... And at this time, the church has grown into the regions of Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Which was essentially the known world of Palestine during the ministry of Jesus. I mean, if you look on a map, right? And we'll get to that here in just a second. You'll be able to find it on your map. But no longer is the church simply stationed in Jerusalem. There are believers meeting together in these different regions. Different church gatherings, but one church. One church. As the gospel continues to roll forward in Acts, you'll notice the plural. When we get into the missionary journeys next summer, Lord willing, you'll notice that plural. Churches. Okay? Paul and his companions, as the Spirit leads them, they're going to plant several local assemblies, gathering places, churches, scattered throughout the Mediterranean. And while there are many local assemblies, there is one church, one body, united around one faith, One God, 
one baptism, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, one spirit. Interestingly there, Paul calls the church to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. In this exhortation, it sits in the context of walking worthy of the calling to which the Lord called them. So the church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. If you turn for just a moment in the, in the map, you probably in your Bible have a map at the back of your Bible. You can look at it for just a moment if you'd like to. It might be helpful. But if you find the map of Palestine in the time of Jesus, probably have a, a map of, of that kind in your Bible. You'll notice probably in more bold letters the region of Judea. You'll notice further north, Bold letters that say a region of Samaria. And if you keep going north, you'll notice bold letters that say Galilee. Okay? So you can look on the map. You can see the regions that we're talking about here. They're all right there together, connected, adjacent to each other on the map. So it's the church in these areas, in these regions, had peace. Now, not much is mentioned here about Galilee, and it's interesting that Luke mentions Galilee. Since Jesus spent a large majority of his time in the region of Galilee, there would have been a contingent of believers gathered in this region. Remember, Galilee was the place where the Lord appeared to his disciples and said, hey, meet me in Galilee. I'm going to be in Galilee. That's where you want to be. Galilee. It's right before he ascended into heaven. Matthew 28, you'll read about that. In Corinthians 15, there's a list of people. Remember the list of people that Jesus appeared to? Paul's writing, and he's talking about the core of the gospel. Here's what the gospel is, and he says, Christ was raised. And when he was raised, he appeared to all these people. And in the midst of that list of people that he appeared to, the text mentions that he appeared to more than 500 of the brethren at one time. It doesn't tell us exactly where he appeared to them, but it was if it was Galilee, this would perhaps lend itself to a number of believers planted in that area and explain maybe in part the mention here in Acts 9.31. Jesus did much of his ministry in Galilee. So the church in these regions had peace. That's what the text says. They had peace. I want you to keep in mind what we're reading today is one of the many summary verses in the book of Acts. Okay? And, and this, is, this is truly one of my favorite Summary passages, so much more that I, uh, so much so that I, I, I spoke with, with Kevin and Ralph and, and wanted, just wanted to preach this verse. I just, I just love this verse because it speaks so much about the church. And I, and I hope after we're done today and Lord willing next week, we'll come to see why this is such a significant passage, not only for the church then, but for the church today. I believe it has great value for the church today. Now the idea behind the word peace here in the text has in mind tranquility, okay? No wars, no battles happening at this time. Contextually, no persecution of the church is going on right now, okay? The church is experiencing a time of peace right here in Acts 9.31. Having listed already up front several challenges along the way, in the beginning of Acts, it's comforting and refreshing to arrive at such a summary verse. Now, what is it that contributes to the peace of the church? I believe there are two primary things, and they're both connected to Saul. Okay? First of all, Saul is no longer persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. Right? 
He's just been converted. Acts chapter 9. Secondly, as a new creation in Christ, Saul himself is now quickly persecuted. It's interesting that as Acts 9 opens, he's the one persecuting. As Acts 9 ends, he's the one being persecuted. (laughs) It didn't take very long in the scriptures for things to change. But we see that Initially, the Jews in Damascus were threatening him with his life. Verse 25 of Acts 9, it says the disciples caught wind of it and they rescued him. And late at night, they, all you young men would like this part of the story. I'm sure as a young man growing up in the home, you, you read this story. This was an exciting story because it happened at night. Secret. They lowered him in a basket. And he escaped. That was the first threat on his life. And then we see a few verses later that even in Jerusalem, he comes into contact with the Hellenists and they attempted to kill him as well. There was also, as you read some of the history of that time, there was a political change going on about this time. And those who came in to leadership were establishing a greater sense of order and structure in the Palestine area perhaps lending itself, at least in part, to a time of peace as well for the church. But with Saul gone, at least for a time, there's peace. Now Saul's name's going to pop up again when we get to the end of chapter 11. Barnabas is going to find him in his hometown, Tarsus. And Barnabas is going to, for about a year, they're going to minister in Antioch. And then at the beginning of chapter 13, then that's going to set the stage for their first missionary journey. Okay? So... Acts 9.31 is not only a summary to announce peace upon the church, but it stands in many ways as a transitory text in the context. In Acts 9.32-43, through which we'll get to here soon, the gospel attention is focused back upon Peter and his ministry in Lydda and Joppa, which then is going to set the stage for his ministry in the home of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Where the door is going to be opened officially to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Okay, that's where things are headed. So we have peace. The church had peace. And while it primarily in this context has in mind a time of tranquility, free of warring, free of strife, if you will. There's something more to peace that impacts the church of Jesus Christ. You know that, right? I mean, if you you look at the text... It says that the churches had peace and were edified. Were edified. They're connected here. They had peace and were edified. The literal rending of were edified is that they were being built up. In what way was the church being built up? We're going to spend much of our time talking about how the church was built up. How the church here can be built up. What does it mean to edify one another? In the body of Christ. Did the list of challenges I read earlier in the book of Acts. Have anything to do with the church being built up at this time? Perhaps it had some things to do with it. But I believe that the Bible itself gives us the answer. To how the church was being built up. And if you turn backwards in Acts to chapter 2 verse 42. I believe Acts 2 verse 42 provides the picture of the church that once gathered in Jerusalem. And it gives us a biblical portrait of how the church was being built up. It says, and they continued steadfastly 
in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Now, contrary to many church growth plans that are about today, the early church operated in the power of the Holy Spirit and devoted themselves to four things according to the Bible. Doctrine, or the teaching of the apostles, which really equated to the teachings of Jesus, right? The apostles were, after all, the ones who were following Jesus for those two and a half, three years of ministry. So the teachings of the apostles were truly the teachings of Christ. So when the Bible says in Acts 2.42 that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, yes, it was coming from the apostles, but the apostles got it from Christ himself. It says also they devoted themselves to fellowship. That word koinonia, right? Familiar with the word koinonia? The breaking of bread and the prayers. If you track the early parts of Acts, you see the church attaching themselves to these four things. Right? When things get tough, they stick to the apostolic doctrine passed down to them through Christ. They preach Christ. Remember we talked a few weeks ago in Colossians 1. Preach Christ. Him we preach. That's what they were doing. When they're released from the hands of the council, they have a prayer meeting. And the place where they're meeting. Remember that? The place, what happened to the place where they're meeting? Remember? It was shaking. It was shaking. And the Bible says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Acts 5.31. Genuine fellowship centered on Christ's finished work. Breaking of bread was an opportunity for the church to participate together. And we get a chance to do that today again. To participate together. To remember what Christ has done for us. What he finished. What he completed at the cross. And in the midst of all the challenges the church faced. They did not turn. This is important. In the midst of all the challenges. They did not turn to the right. They didn't turn to the left. But they stayed the course devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. You see, in the midst of the challenges that confronted the church, and in the midst of challenges today that confront the church, there may be a tendency to make substitutions along the way. Now, I have a a bit of a sports background, and some of you familiar with the game of basketball or the game of... It can apply to in many sport, but we'll just take basketball. In the game of basketball, you can, as a team, have five players on the court. You can't have any more than that. You have to have five at one time on the court. And you can substitute someone in. If you substitute someone in, they go to the scores table, and there's a horn that beeps, and they come in, referee signals them in. One leaves, another one comes in. Substitute. Right? Football, you have 11, Right? And in between plays, you might have a couple guys run on and a couple guys run off. They're substituting. Hockey, they do it while action's going on. I don't understand hockey. There's substitutions happening. But you can't add additional, you can't just put additional players on the court. Without a penalty, that is. You see, I, I think the church would do well to, to heed or take note of this particular principle. It, it seems that the church is always trying to make substitutions. 
The problem is this. God has put in place how his church is to be built up. How his church is to be edified. It's simple, really. Nothing flashy, but it's solid. And because God has established the criteria for his church, he empowers it in such a way, this is important, he empowers his church in such a way, no substitutions are needed. His power fuels the church. His power edifies the church. No substitutes are needed. He has given everything that's needed for his church. You see, the, if we look at early on in Acts, the apostles ran into a problem. Remember when the council tried to impose, here's what it was. The council tried to impose a substitute teaching upon the apostles. Remember that? Don't teach. Don't teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and John, in response, said in Acts 4.20, we cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And then one chapter later, the council attempts again to impose a substitute teaching again. And the apostles say in Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. In Acts 6, when you, when you encounter the food distribution problem, what's at stake, though, is another potential substitute. Think about it. A complaint reaches the ears of the apostles. A certain segment of widows are not getting their daily distribution. Praise the Lord for men filled with the Holy Spirit, men surrendered to the will of God, men desiring to hear from the Spirit and and to pray for God's wisdom on the situation. What a damaging substitution that could have occurred. What if the apostles had substituted their God-given calling and spent all their energies, even for but a time, ministering to the widows? Instead, they chose to follow God's leading. They appointed these seven men with the help of the church. They appointed these seven men and they continued to give themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. You see, the church that starts to make substitutions, it might be little substitutions at first, but the next substitution becomes easier to make. And the next, easier yet. Until the church becomes a place where substitutions are regularly allowed and even welcomed, perhaps. What God set forth for his church, man has seen fit to substitute for. Acts 9.31 says that the churches had peace and were edified. Is it possible, though, to be in the midst of turmoil and still be edified? Yes, I believe so. But that takes a peace of a different kind at work, doesn't it? The peace that's described in Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace in Philippians 4.7 that says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds, how? Through Christ Jesus. The peace It comes in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. That's Jesus Christ himself. And Isaiah prophesies and speaks of this same person. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. What is it? Prince of Peace. This peace in Philippians 4.9, Paul says, The things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace 
will be with you. How is he with us? Through his spirit. He's poured out in our hearts. Jesus said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. And at the end of John 16, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have turmoil. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world, Jesus says. And then we see that peace in Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. That is a fruit of the Spirit in you. What happened at the end of Acts 7 takes this kind of peace that we just described. Peace with God. Christ's peace manifested through the spirit of peace in you. See, when Stephen was martyred and the church was scattered, you don't get the idea that the believers were panicking. They weren't hiding for cover. Instead, the text says in Acts 8, verse 4, that those who were scattered went everywhere. What'd they do? Preaching the word. These believers had peace with God operating in them, enabling them in the midst of persecution to stick with God's will for their lives. That's important, church. And that's truly a test of one's faith, isn't it? I mean, it's relatively simple when we're living life on the mountaintop, isn't it? But the real test comes in the midst of the challenges that come our way. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond when things get tough? Are you going to look for a substitute? Are you going to look for a different way to do this? Are you going to look for someone else to bail you out? Or are you going to look to God? Are you going to trust in Him? Are you going to hold fast to Him? That's the question. Are, are you going to, as Romans 1.25 says, are you going to exchange the truth of God for the lie? There are many lies out there available to hold on to. Are you going to be content with the traditions and philosophies of men instead of Christ? Colossians chapter 2. Having started out operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, are you going to substitute the flesh as a better way? That's what Paul writes about in Galatians. You see, God indeed uses the hard times to build up His church. He uses difficult times to build up his children. He doesn't waste your painful, hard situations. Some of you right now are in a bind and you can't see any way out currently. You just can't see it. You don't know how it's, gonna, how it's all going to work out. You might be on the verge of making one of those substitutions. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Stay the course. This passage in Isaiah is a delight as I was reading it in light of the context here. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. Beginning in verse 11. 
For the Lord God, the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand or a mighty hand. So God's speaking to Isaiah and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. Saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hollow, him Let him be your fear. We'll talk about that next week. And let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait on the Lord. You can mark that part. I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob. And here's the other part. I will hope in him. I will wait in the Lord. I will hope in him. Here, and listen to Isaiah. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel. For the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they say to you, this is important, listen to this. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God? In other words, don't be making substitutes. Seek your God. This God who, this covenant God who's called his people out. He's rescued them out of Egypt. He's done all of these things. He's shown signs and wonders. He's rescued them time and time again. Don't go elsewhere. Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Here it is, verse 20. To the law. And to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Why would you substitute something or someone who has not the word of God, has not the light in them? Why would you go to them for counsel? Why would you go to them for understanding? And yet it seems people, church people, are doing these very things. Stay the course. Hold on to the head to which you're connected. The church in Acts 9, 31 had peace and was edified. They were being built up during this particular time. I want you to see though, church, that apart from the word of God, And the spirit of God working in you. That's the peace with God idea. Right? Peace with God comes alongside of the spirit of God being in you. Edification. Is nothing more than just word speak. Apart from the word and the spirit working in you. The idea of being built up. Has spiritual implications. Spiritual implications. Okay? If you turn to Ephesians for just a moment, I'd like to give a few, I'd like to give some examples. We're going to try and make this very practical, put some handles to it so we can walk out of here with a greater understanding of what this means to be built up, to be edified. How can you edify as a part of the body, someone else in the body? We're going to talk about that this morning. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11, he himself, that's Christ. Gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. For the, here it is, for the edifying of the body of Christ. 
till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes, here it is, growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, a few things to note here in these verses. First of all, Christ has placed pastors and teachers in his church to equip the saints for ministry. In so doing, the purpose is for the edifying of the body of Christ. You see that from 11 and 12. We see edification within Christ's church is intended to be ongoing. Verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is a process. This is ongoing. The church is to be edifying one another. Ongoing. It ties in in many ways to the Colossians 1, 28 and 29 passage. Because it speaks in many ways of him we preach. And the ultimate goal of why we're preaching Christ is to present every man perfect, mature, complete, whole in Christ. That's the big picture objective. And that's a process that takes time. We see also edification within Christ's church. It's intended to move us forward in the Lord. It's intended to serve as an anchor for discerning truth. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children... You see, edification in Christ's church, one of the reasons, I love this about edification in the body. You see, the Lord has set it up in such a way that he's not content with you remaining a child in Christ, a babe in Christ. Some of you here are babes in Christ. You've been a Christian perhaps for many years, but you are a babe in Christ. And sadly, you're okay with it. God's not okay with it. He has set his church up in such a way that the parts of the body in the process of edifying one another no longer children. You see, edifying in the body of Christ goes to the extent that there's a discernment now that's going to take place in the lives, in the parts of the body. As we are building each other up in the truth, in Christ, there's greater discernment among the parts of the body. Discernment in what we would choose to do, discernment in what we would choose not to do. We see edification within Christ's church. It also involves speaking truth and love. Verse 15, with the goal, with the goal of growing up in all things. You know, that jumped off the page at me this week. Grow up in all things. In all things. Not just those things you might deem in your mind spiritual things. Grow up in all things. 
This is no compartmentalization of my life. Well, I'm just going to give part of my life. I'll give this one part over here to the Lord. Grow up in all things into the head. That's what happens when edification is going on in the body of Christ. All things become surrendered to the Lord. We're growing up in all things into him who is the head. Who's the head? Christ. Verse 16. Edification within Christ's church flows out. This is so important. Flows out of connection. First to the head, Christ. And also to the other parts of the body who are also connected to the head. Do you see that? We're connected first to the head, Christ. And we're also connected to the other parts of the body who are also connected to the head. There's a connection that we have with the parts of the body. And this seemed to be the problem in Colossae. If you remember in Colossae, chapter 2, verse 19, the church was not holding fast to the head. Colossians 2, 19 tells us that. Not, not holding fast to the head. They, they, there, was, there were other things they were holding fast to besides the head. Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Another example here that I want to give to you. This is another church, another body of Christ context. I want you to listen to the place given to edification in the scriptures. Okay? Corinthians 14. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification. There's the word. Speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies who? The church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets. Look at the end of the verse. That the church may receive edification. All right, hold that now. That the church may receive edification. If you skip down a few verses, look at verse 12. You see, we have to remember context. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth... They were zealous for spiritual gifts. Oh, they were zealous for spiritual gifts. So much so, it got them into trouble. And so Paul writes a letter, in part, explaining, helping them understand the right place for spiritual gifts. What are spiritual gifts? Paul spends a a lot of time talking about that. Well, right here in chapter 14, verse 12, he says, Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Read that again. Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Keep reading chapter 14. Skip a few more verses. Go to verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together? Talking about our meeting. Okay? Paul's talking about their meeting. Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Here it is. Let all things be done for... Edification. Verse 40, he says, let them be done decently. Let them be done in order. What does this passage have to say to the believer in Jesus Christ? First of all, here's what it says. First of all, you are a part of the body of Christ. An integral part, but nevertheless a part. A part. Not the main attraction. Anybody here think they're a main attraction? 
I just want to let them know that the Bible doesn't say that. Christ, who is the head, is the main attraction. Okay? We are a part of his body. Now, as a part of the body of Christ, you've been granted spiritual gifts, which are intended, according to Corinthians 12, 7, for the profit of all. Okay, you've been given spiritual gifts for the profit of all, not just for you, not to elevate you. No, it's for the profit of all, for the profit of the body. Three, as a part of the body of Christ, the Bible would call you to, as it says in Corinthians 14, 12, the Bible would call you as well to seek to excel. Maybe that's the phrase we need to get in our mind. Seek to excel for the edification of the church. What are we seeking to excel in as a part of the body? I hope, according to the scripture here, I hope we are seeking to excel in the edification of the church. And fourth, practically speaking, as a part of the body of Christ. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. I hope these words sound familiar because it's Romans 12, 9 through 11. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit. Here it is right here. Serving the Lord. By the way, Romans 12 is also context church life. Okay? Serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. So church, if, if what you are doing is not edifying to the church, and perhaps you are attempting to substitute something else for what God has intended. Consider for just a moment, if you will, how am I edifying the body here at Hope in Christ? How am I doing that? Think about that for just a, just a moment. More pointedly, perhaps ask yourself this question. Have I, have I been most mindful of edifying myself or my own family? As a part of Christ's church, have I considered edifying one another optional? Have I viewed it as something I'll get to if and when there's time? If you are in Christ, that's a conditional statement. If you are in Christ, the Bible says that you belong to the family of God over which Christ is the head. As a part of his body, you are to be about the work of building up one another. Those other parts connected to the head. I'm connected to them because of my connection with the head. This is the crux of fellowship. One of the things the church is devoted to, right? Fellowship, Acts 2.42. Koinonia, a sharing together, a participation with. Community. Fellowship at its core is shared among believers in Christ. Believers in Christ who are connected to Christ, to the head. And so the church in Acts 9.31 had a time of peace and was edified as a part of the church I hope you see that being built up is not one sided I, I hope you see this in other words you don't join a church that others might now meet your needs oh no doubt in the church your needs will get met 
as we carry out what the Bible calls us to carry out. But there are some who perhaps like it to the nth degree when the church meets their needs. And as long as the church meets their needs, or as long as they don't have to meet anyone else's needs... But wait a moment. We need to ask the question. Whose church is this? Christ. What part do you play in this church if you are in Christ? The Bible says you are a part. You are a member. A part connected to the head and connected to other parts who are connected to the head. The Bible says that these parts or members... Corinthians 12.25 says this, should have the same care for one another. Whether rejoicing, whether suffering, the body is to have the same care for one another. Now, practically speaking, what does this mean? What are we talking about? The branch family. Kevin, if you're listening, praise the Lord for a new birth. The branch family just had a new baby this week, in case you didn't know. We welcome Daniel Lee, not only to the Branch family, but to the family here at Hope in Christ. As a part of the body, here is a way to extend care to a part of the church. Let me just give you some practical ways that you can do this. First of all, you can provide a meal. Secondly, you might write a note of encouragement with Scripture. Put some scriptures that come to mind. The Lord would give you to encourage them from scripture. Maybe you make a phone call to let them know you care. Just to let them know, praying for you. Maybe you pay them a visit. Out of courtesy, call them first. Maybe you pray for them diligently as they integrate this new member into their family. Church, they need prayer right now. They're adding another member into their family. Many of you know that adding individuals into your family takes some time to adjust to another family member. We need to be in prayer for them. Maybe you just inquire as to whether there's anything else needed at this time. Is there anything else we can do besides a meal? Those are some practical things that you can do as a part of the body to edify another part of the body, to build them up. There are lots of ways to practically love and serve this family. It's important that you understand they're connected to you. So let's practice what we're talking about right here in the text this week. And let's prayerfully consider how we can come alongside the branch family to encourage one another to build each other up. Okay? Let's do that. How else can you edify one another in the body? Let me give you one other example. And the other example is found back in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm giving you practical examples of what this means to edify one another in the body of Christ. Ephesians 4. Context of the church. We are applying the text, church. Applying. We're applying it right here. I want you to see that being built up is not something reserved for the early church. The church is intended to edify itself in love, Ephesians 4.16 says. As all the parts holding fast to the head 
do their share. Look at Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Your words that come out of your mouth. I want you to remember Ephesians 4, context, is a passage for the church. As you consider how you might edify the church as a part of Christ's body, your words, all of them, all of them, all your words count. The tendency, perhaps, when you read Ephesians 4.29 is to immediately dismiss it, thinking that you speak no corrupt words. The word corrupt has in mind bad, rotten, unwholesome. If you continue reading into chapter 5 of Ephesians, even the end of 4, you see that Paul is continuing to talk about our speech. And as a child of God, as a child walking in the light... There is a way that we're to speak, and there's a way we're not to speak. But perhaps, as a believer in the Lord, you read 429 and you say to yourself, I don't, I don't speak any corrupt words. I keep it clean. If that's all we think when we come to Ephesians 429, we're missing the entirety of the, of the verse. The entirety of the meaning. We may get perhaps part of it right. It's, it's, it's like congratulating yourself on fleeing the foul language area. I don't use foul language. Well, that's good for you. That's great. But there's more to this. It's more than just fleeing something, isn't it? What are you pursuing? What is coming out of your mouth? The literal rendering here, when he's talking about in the text, necessary edification, literal rendering, to build up as the occasion requires. To build up as the occasion requires. Are you seeking ways to build up one another in the body? To do so, you might need some discernment to know what the occasion might require. In other words, you need to move from positional connectedness with that part of the body to operational connectedness. Let me explain what I mean by that. When God saved you by grace through faith, He placed you in His body. There is now positional connectedness. Active But operational connectedness happens when you move from being a hearer only to being a doer of the word, James 1.22. If you've been carefully reading the book of Acts, you've probably noticed that the believers in Christ are concerned. No, they're devoted. That's the word that's used. They're steadfast about operational connectedness. Operational connectedness. With the parts of the body. They hear the word together. They break bread together. They pray together. And they fellowship together. Our words matter. Our words are one way. They're means by which we can edify one another. Let's be careful, please, as a church, 
with the words that we speak to one another. One more practical example, and then we're done. Stems out of Acts 9.31. Turn to Romans chapter 14. Again, context, church. Romans 14.19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. Isn't it interesting that those words peace and edify are right there together as Paul's writing in 14.19? Instead of destroying with your food the one for whom Christ died, that's the context of Romans 14. Or another way to put it, not walking in love toward your brother. Let us pursue, let us run swiftly after, let us give priority to the things which make for peace and the things by which... One may edify another. Hold that idea. Skip down a few verses. Romans 15. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to what? Edification. Edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Acts 9.31 says that the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. You know, we, we need to praise the Lord for these times described here, these times of peace. When they arrive, count it as a blessing from the Lord. Edification. Being built up. It's not just an eldership role. I hope you see this in the scripture. This is not an option if you are in Christ. It's a role for each part of the body. And let us each be about the business of pleasing his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. You see, when you set out to please your neighbor for his good, it it not only leads to edification, but most importantly, it leads to Christ. That scripture in Romans says, for even Christ did not please himself. Acts 9.31 is a great summary passage in the book of Acts. It brings to remembrance all that the church has gone through in its history up to this point. But it also holds forth a candle of hope. A candle that shines light for the church today. Of greater importance than knowing the peace described in Acts 9.39. Is first knowing the peace that comes by faith through Jesus Christ. That's my hope and prayer for you today. If you're here today and you don't know that peace. You haven't experienced that peace It's my hope and prayer that you would know that peace that comes through Jesus Christ alone. If a church is to be edified and to take part in edifying other parts of the body, she must first be connected to and hold fast to the head, which is Christ. To talk about edifying the body of Christ without having some understanding of our connectedness to the head. 
It's a moot point. It's futile. We must first be connected to the head if we are going to edify anyone in the body of Christ. The example set forth for us, church, is Christ. For even Christ did not please himself. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 4, 10 and 11 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The the complete atoning sacrifice for our sins. He did that. God did that. Sent Jesus down here. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In speaking about this unique love, Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates or proves his own, his own unique love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Church, it's important to know and to understand that this Christ who serves as our true source of peace, a peace unlike that the world can give and offer. Christ died for you. He did not please himself, but willingly laid down his life for you. The next time, you have opportunity to edify another part of this body. I want you to remember to give thanks to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You were once dead in your transgressions, the Bible says. You once only thought about servicing your own needs. But when the grace of God appeared and you became a new creation, He put a new spirit within you And gave you a new heart, new mind, a new disposition toward life. So that now holding fast to the head, which is Christ, you are inclined to think of others' interests ahead of your own interests. In honor, giving preference to one another. Fervent in spirit, serving for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you're here today. You realize that, don't you? What better way to glorify God than by serving Him with your life in the context of the church He's planted you in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for the peace that only you can give. I thank you for building us up in the most holy faith through your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray for this church here at Hope in Christ that we might move forward in confidence out of our positional connectedness with the head and be diligent to put into practice operational connectedness. That we move from simply hearing the word to actually doing it. Pray that we might comfort one another and edify one another as you have called us to in your body. 
Pray that your word would be embraced as it was intended. Your word in John 17, 17 says that your word is truth. Pray that we would see that, that we would understand that, we would walk in that truth. That we would teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes, rather than godly edification, which is in faith. As elders in your church, Lord, I pray we would share the same heart as the Apostle Paul, that we would do all things for the edification of the brethren. Father, there are many today who cause divisions within your church, mockers who do not have the spirit of Christ in them. I pray that this body would build herself on the holy faith entrusted to her care. That each one here would pray in the Holy Spirit, desiring to keep himself in the love of God and looking always for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. In Christ, who is the head of this church, I pray. Amen.